Hello and welcome to a new podcast series hosted by me, Seb Coe. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to people from across the sporting world, talking about their journey, how this awful pandemic has affected them, and how they're navigating their way to the new normal we all soon have to face. Joining me today is one of the brightest athletes Great Britain has ever produced. A member of Blackheath and Bromley Harriers Athletics Club, she went on to become the 2019 world champion in Doha. Her dream of bagging gold in Tokyo uh, this summer was, of course, put on hold. The independent newspaper described her as painfully and refreshingly normal, a human being. My guest today is Dina Asher-Smith. Welcome, Dina. Or Dina, should I really be saying welcome, Geraldina? Oh, stop. (laughs) Nobody really brings up my full name. (laughs) Um, Hi, good morning. Thank you for that. um, Tina, you didn't honestly think I was going to come in here under brief. And get away with that. You know, nobody actually knows that's my full name. Like very Well, they do now. They definitely do now. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) But um, yeah, very few people. Oh, gosh. Yeah. My my mum will be so happy to hear that you've name dropped that, honestly. (laughs) So when did you shorten it to Dina? Oh, that's been, it's been Dina my whole life. I don't even think I fully knew my name was Geraldina till I was about four. But um, my mum tells the story that my full name is Geraldina, but she prefers Dina. But it's Geraldina just in case I go on to have a job that requires like a long formal name. <laughs> but Dina is like useful and punchy because I'm named after her school time, her well, her school best friend. And um, yeah, she was Geraldina, then shortened to Dina. So if it had been Geraldina Asher Smith, we'd have had struggle getting it up onto the scoreboard. I would not have let that run. Don't worry. I would have shortened it myself <laughs> of my own conviction. <laughs> Okay, well, now we've sort of covered that off and I've embarrassed you wonderfully at the start of this conversation. Uh, Normal human being? Yeah, I think so. I mean, other people might agree. I mean, might disagree. But um, I know that quote, I hadn't actually heard that that quote from The Independent before, which was, it's really nice and it makes me smile. But um, yeah, I think I'm quite normal because I don't know, I'm just a normal 24-year-old. Obviously, uh, my job is quite different to to a lot of people my age but at the same time I just see myself as normal like yes I enjoy seeing well as not as normal as any world champion can be <laughs> as and somebody that's just become the fastest <laughs> woman on two legs in the United Kingdom of all time yeah <laughs> I guess so uh yeah I think but I think I think it's being normal is actually really helpful for the kind of job that we have as well because if you suddenly start to get swept up in the hype and you let and you kind of bow into the amount of people that say oh you're great oh you're fantastic blah 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 blah, then um that's how you very quickly become not very good at your job because then you start getting lazy you start getting um complacent and you start thinking oh it doesn't matter I'm special I can do this so um I actually think it really helps to be normal and grounded and grateful. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook quite that easily, Dina, because I had the great privilege, you probably remember, mm. uh, of joining you and your parents at the table at the European Athletics Awards ceremony a couple of years ago. You just cleaned up in Berlin uh, spectacularly, and you were just a few moments of being made the European Athlete uh, of the Year. Mm-hmm. 
And I felt really privileged that night because I watched an interaction between you and your parents, Julie and Winston, that are at the table. Mm. And the one thing that came home to me very quickly in just sort of sitting there watching all of you was that clearly you have a very happy, stable uh, and supportive background, mm -hmm. particularly parents. And I'm guessing you, would, you will tell me they were a great asset in keeping you normal and helping you navigate your way to the highest level of our sport. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't even call them an asset. I mean, they're just my parents, but I am very fortunate that I've got a very happy, stable home. And I think that, and I've got incredibly supportive parents that have, since I've been, since I was born, they've always gone above and beyond to just make sure that First and foremost, I was happy and then I was able to kind of explore whatever I wanted to explore. And, and I know that I know that does to some people that sounds like pretty normal and something that lots of parents should do. But I know that particularly with all the people that I've met across the track and field world and life in general, that that wasn't normal for a lot of people. So I am honestly really, really grateful. They're great. And yeah, they make me smile. And <laughs> whenever they're happy, I'm happy. And um, it's quite easy to keep them happy because they're naturally happy people anyway. So, um, yeah, we were a nice little tight-knit group. <laughs> always laughing, always smiling about something silly. But, um, yeah. Well, the, the one thing I found out about your mum that night, mm. uh, which very, very impressed me, was that she was an 800-metre runner and a cross-country runner, Dina. She was. Um, she used to run for Hearn Hill, like, way back in the day. And she was also a very big fan of yours as well. So I have to tell you, I think, I don't know if she told you that that night, but like she was so happy to be <laughs> sat at a table with you. I was like, mum, please don't embarrass me. Please don't embarrass me. <laughs> but um, she's a huge fan of yours. But also, yeah, she was an 800. Well, Dina, she went a bit further than that, but she did actually tell me she had a poster. Oh, gosh, she did. I remember, I remember being embarrassed. <laughs> I remember being like, this is my time to leave. Not now. I mean, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Not now. No, no, no. When she was much younger. Before the grey hair. <laughs> she was much younger. But um, yeah, she used to run 800 in cross country. And she all, but I think she stopped that in her maybe late teens, early 20s. But then she played hockey, like I guess what we would, we would call now semi-professionally, um, until she was pregnant with me. So, um, yeah. Is that where you got your love of the sport? Um. Probably. But I think I got my love of the sport and sport in general, just because my parents are absolutely sports mad. Like my mum is can tell you whatever happened with any football match ever. If she supports Man United, if Man United lose, we don't talk about football that weekend. If it's Formula One. Well, or... She's not been talking about football for a bit. <laughs> no, for a while. It hasn't been a topic. <laughs> no, in her office, the door is shut. So it's been shut for like a year or so. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But um, yeah, and my dad's into Formula One. So if it was like a race day in Formula One, then everything stops. We don't leave the house. We're just all in front of the TV. So I've always grew up in a very sporting environment. But so when the Olympics came on, we would be watching anything and everything. Like they used to wake up in the middle of the night. If something was on, they'd have the reminders ticking off and the alarms, whatnot. So um, 
We're just a sports mad family in general. But in the, in the London Games, Dina, you were a bag carrier, weren't you? I was. You carried some of the kit. <laughs> I was a kit carrier, yeah. Kit yeah. carrier, yeah. Yes. And a year later, you were a medalist in the World Championships in Moscow. I know. That was a full... That was a meteoric that was a rise. Yeah, that was a big, big, big change. And now looking back, um, I'm still surprised that I didn't like <laughs> get super nervous or anything like that. But um, yeah, 2012, I was a kit carrier, so... I mean, lots of people in the UK, they'll know that the local athletics clubs and the local sports clubs across yeah, all disciplines, they got the opportunity to nominate 10 people to go and help out at the Games in any way. So Blackheath and Bromley is a London club. We got it and we got to kick carry for the athletics, which was like what we wanted anyway. It was the most amazing thing to do from an athletics perspective. And we were fortunate enough to be kick carrying on Super Saturday as well. So I was literally... Not a bad night to have chosen. I know. At first, ironically, when we looked at the timetable, we wanted to see Usain. So we were like, oh, God, we missed Usain's day. We were like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We still got like Mo, we still got Greg, we still got Jess. We didn't know that it was going to be obviously the highlight of British athletics sporting history, like ever. So, um, yeah, we were treated that night but it was definitely a whirlwind to going from carrying kit to them being teammates and a medalist on the same GB senior team a year later yeah well I was very fond of saying at the time of the games that the difference between the good and the great games are really entirely down to the volunteers and we mm. clearly had the best volunteers Thanks. We, in you Dina <laughs> we had some of the most talented volunteers <laughs> that an Olympic Games has probably ever ever drawn on let me just probe for a few moments your your career because I don't want this just to become a you know and in nineteen <laughs> whatever she did this and, and 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 the rest. But you showed prodigious talent at a pretty young age, and I'm looking down at my scribbles here, and it, for me it's absolutely mind blowing. You ran thirty nine and little bits for three hundred mm. at the age of thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> and to put that into perspective, that is, you know that. That by any stretch of the imagination, even today, for a club runner twice your age or that age would have been pretty spectacular. Yeah, thank you. I um, Yeah, I think that was one of my first runs where I started to think, and well, me and my coach started to think, oh, we've got something kind of a bit special right here. I remember that day like it was yesterday, mainly because that was the most painful run of my life. The lactic, which I'd never really experienced before at 13. Um, I'd, not, I'd been doing like 75s and 150s and I'd just been sprinting, having a grand old time, just running, like no pain really in my legs. And then I did a 300 and I was like, is this what these people go through all the time? I am never, <laughs> ever going above 200 again. But um, yeah, I remember that day. I literally, it was one of those runs where you'll probably know, but you run and you don't even know if you could have done it again because some somewhere... You just ran so far out of what you thought you could have run at that time. Yeah. And if you had to reproduce it, you're like, I'd have to go to such depths, to such pains to reproduce it because um, it was honestly, yeah, it was it was a hard run, but it was it was a lot of fun. And I think it surprised a lot of people. And, and since then, I think probably, well, I think John's known for ages, but he's been guiding me and making sure that I just stay on the straight and narrow and continue to work hard. One of the, you've just mentioned his name, so this is a good moment to segue into that. One of the most, for me, one of the nicest emotional moments on British television for many years was the tribute that John Blackie, your coach, 
you mm. always had him. Yeah. Uh, was given a, the BBC Sports Review of the Year uh, and Coach of the Year Award. And that was a pretty big achievement because there were some pretty serious coaching achievements yeah. over the course of, of last year. Mm. And watching the two of you uh, on that stage reminded me a lot of the relationship that I had with my father, father coach. It, mm. But it doesn't really matter. The relationship with the other coach is, is often the closest, one of the closest relationships you'll ever have, probably outside of a marriage. Yeah. Uh, and it just came to me that night that not only have you got an immensely comfortable and stable background, but you've also got one of the most grounded, lovely coaches oh. that, <laughs> that's standing on the trackside. Honestly, like I am... I am so eternally grateful to John. In my opinion, John, you can, like, when I was, when I realised that John was going to win Coach of the Year for BBC Sports Personality, I literally cried and um, I wasn't allowed to tell him. And I know, I, I don't know if I should be saying this, but I only knew, no, I only knew, this is my defence, I only knew so they would make sure that he turned up, like, looking TV ready. So, so he had, had no idea when he, he was on his absolutely. way up He didn't then. even know he was nominated. Like, we kept it so under wraps. And they only <laughs> told him he was nominated whilst he was, like, on the red carpet because people wanted a picture of me and him together. And he was like, why do they want me? And then to just get him a bit prepped, they were like, oh, um, John, you, oh, yeah, you've been nominated for Coach of the Year. He was like, I didn't know that. That's great. So he was, like, <laughs> over the moon to be nominated. And I was like, yeah. I can actually nominated. hear him saying that. Yeah. He was like, he was like, that's all right. And then it was, I was like, it's with, like, I think it was Yogan Klopp, Pep Guardiola, like, a few people. I was like, it was, it really was, well. It was in good company. Yeah. So he was on cloud nine anyway. And, um, but I was just so happy to see him awarded. Because obviously I'm entirely biased, but I think that, Anything that I produce on track, any kind of step that I make on track is directly attributed to him. And that's not decrying my own hard work or ability, but it's his patience. And he has had so much of an effect of me physically and mentally. And because he's known me since I was eight years old, he's kind of been like a second dad as well. So he's been there through this phase, this phase, this phase, this phase, 13-year-old Dina, 18-year-old Dina now. Um, and we've grown from like, I listen to what he World does. World champion Dina. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> that as well, but, yeah. Um, yeah, we've grown, he says it better than me, but we've grown from what used to be more like I do what he says to more like a partnership. And... Um, it's just been a great journey and I think that he's been so selfless and so amazing that he 100% deserves everything that <laughs> he kind of, yeah, he gets more and, um, yeah. Let's take it right up to today mm -hmm. or, or, in fairness, just a few months ago. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard that the games had been postponed? Yes, I was at home. <laughs> In lockdown. <laughs> Already? Yeah, yeah. It's been a very strange kind of month, a um, few months for me. I think I remember... I can't, I can't, I think I remember I was, for some reason, I feel like I was doing gym or doing some sort of exercises. And in the middle of my um, session, I think my SNC was like, oh, Olympics is done. I was like, okay. <laughs> because um, at that point, I think for, I think everybody around the world will have different perspectives. But at that point, it sounds really weird, but I was relieved. I think I'd gone through so many stages of, first I yeah. was in disbelief. I was like, yeah, no, the Olympics can't be cancelled. This was like February when people started talking about it. I was like, no, no, no. Then I went through kind of being sad. I was like, oh, all that hard work. But then um, when we went into lockdown and the Olympics were still on, 
And as an athlete, you know that by the time July comes, it doesn't matter what obstacles you've had on the journey, but by the time it's race day and it's Olympic final day, doesn't matter what excuses you've got, the gun's going to go and you've got to run. And I was getting really stressed thinking, how on earth am I going to be an Olympic, like, Olympic shape, the shape that I want to be in going into the Olympics, having been trained in my living room? <laughs> so yeah, it's not like, ideal. Yes, yeah, I was like, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. So I, like, I was very fortunate that my sponsors, one of the gym chains over here, Pure Gym, they sent me, like, weights and stuff to make sure that I could do that. But I was thinking, I can't get on a track. All the tracks are closed. I haven't got training partners to train with. What? I honestly remember thinking, what on earth? I don't know what kind of shape I'm going to be in when we come out of this. And if we've got an Olympic Games, um, I remember thinking, this is going to be either the most spectacular thing, if you can pull it off, or it's going to be really risky and quite stressful. So when it got postponed, because obviously, thinking ahead, it became quite unfeasible. At the time, I remember it was just such a pressure relief. I remember thinking, oh, thank thank God. But I never thought, obviously, this year's been so crazy. In a normal year, you'd never think that you'd be relieved that something was postponed. It, it's, it's really funny, Dina, because obviously at the time, I was speaking to a lot of athletes. Mm. And it was... The greatest emotion they displayed afterwards, I think, was relief. Yeah. That they tried everything they possibly could. They knew it was a losing battle. They were getting bored with doing press-ups on chairs. And, yeah. And it, it, was the, it was the specificity that they were lacking and the, and the venues were, were being closed. But I'm, I'm interested in one thing, and, uh, and your view on this would be, for me, very interesting, because I actually sense that the athletes probably are dealing with lockdown and the nature of remote working and well you you said you were a bit of a not not the greatest techie out there but (laughs) actually athletes learn to work remotely their coaches aren't with them every training session Mm. Uh, they're not always with them at races and they're using technology to analyze style technique uh, and sometimes races you know plenty of coaches sit eight time zones away watching an athlete and then 20 minutes later you're you know, looking at something together on an iPad or a laptop mm-hmm. and then planning the next day's training session. So my instinct here is the athletes, It's it's been an uncomfortable, frustrating experience for the athletes, but actually I think they're probably better suited mentally to deal with lockdown than, than most of the rest of us who sort of every day get used to going into an office environment. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I think some degree it is fair because... We do have to be very flexible. I mean, particularly being on the circuit and being an elite athlete, you have to be flexible. Sometimes your coach and your support system isn't there. So you do have to be self-sufficient. You definitely have to hold yourself to account and maintain your high standards, whether you're being watched over by a coach or not. And you do get used to, yeah, communicating remotely. But um, at the same time, I think for us, it's personally for me, it's been the the lack of training group. Which yeah. has been so has been so difficult and so hard, particularly me, because I run with with a lot of boys, a lot of men. So without that constant push, it's the intensity has been very strange to like force that out of yourself. But um, generally, I do think, um, weirdly enough, I think it's been quite it's been an interesting period as an athlete. Like it hasn't been as bad <laughs> as I think 
I was expecting. I mean, I've been able to kind of uh, do video calls for my gym sessions with my coaches three times a week. So I've kind of had my coaches there for four gym sessions. And so that's been fine. And as you've said, I you have you have built up a bit of a reputation in the last week or two as a as quite a demon creator of content. Here. Me? We've wa- yeah, we watched some of this. See, that is that is why lockdown has brought out crazy skills out of all of us because me, I'm a complete technophobe. Whenever there's a video, you should see how long it takes me to create it because I'm like, right, position the phone, press play, and then I play it and I'm like, oh, I was out of the shot, move it again because I'm a complete technophobe. But um, I've been busy and, and well, that's because I, I enjoy being busy. So there's been loads of things where people have been like, do you want to do this, do you want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, go on. Like It gives me something to do, something to prepare for, something to think about so um i've been creating content i've been we've all been watching it dina don't worry what what advice would you give to people at the moment who are isolated working remotely Mm. you know not enjoying the esprit de corps that you talked about with your training groups how 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 are they how would you advise them to stay focused What, what 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 in simple terms would you say to them if they were sitting opposite you now Well, firstly, I'd say set some targets, which might sound really weird since this season is so kind of up in the air. But even if it's concrete stuff like next indoor, if you want to do indoor, this is what I want to do. And sometimes even thinking about the Olympics might be a bit far, but set tangible targets. Maybe it's, oh, by the time December hits, I want to be able to do this. I want to look like this. So that's from a sporting perspective. But on just a human level, I'd say stay busy. Me personally, I've got four evenings a week. I have scheduled Zoom calls with various friendship groups, various things. (laughs) I still have all my gym sessions to do. I've got various work tasks to do. I'm filming a video here, doing this there, reading a book to somebody here and um for me it's just been keeping busy because keeping busy and yeah but allowing yourself to have time with yourself and think don't be overwhelmed but definitely it's just been being productive and keeping busy and it's not you know when people go oh use this time to develop a new skill I'm like no it doesn't have to be something like that it's just something that you enjoy to keep you occupied because otherwise the days just kind of blend <laughs> into one and it gets a bit are, are, there, are there things that you've learned about yourself and you know the balance of your day that you're going to take into the post-pandemic world when we're all out of this Ooh, dreadful virus yeah I think I really enjoy doing stuff in my local area Because before I would do, I mean, I love commuting because I live near London. So I love being in Central and doing all my work there. But um, I love, I think, I think, I don't know if this is true for a lot of people, but because when we've had to stay inside our local area, I realised that how much more relaxed and less stressed I am when there's a five minute commute somewhere rather than 45 minutes or an hour. So, um... Yeah, I think I'll try and bring stuff closer to me in the future because I realise I'm much more peaceful and it saves much more time. But also, I'm very much cool with with my own time and my own, like, being on your own and, and being comfortable with your own thoughts, which I think lots of people aren't quite comfortable with, so they've not enjoyed isolation. But for me, I'm, I'm fine. I can chill on my own. <laughs> I'm OK. <laughs> So, Dina, your rise through athletics has not just raised your sporting profile, it's, of course, made you very popular uh, in the commercial sector of sport. Uh, Sponsors, 
come calling. How are you maintaining your uh, work with them uh, during this lockdown period? Um, really, it's about being flexible. And that's the most important thing, because obviously when sponsors come to me, they mainly want to do stuff with me that they see me on track. <laughs> and the idea that we're not going to be on track for a bit um, does mean that we've had to think of new ways to create content. But um, in all honesty, it's just been about being flexible. And I think because everybody's kind of on hold, I've been more than willing to whatever way they see uh, me being kind of valuable to them. I've had my contributions and, and we've created new content together. And um, that's basically been, yeah, how we've been working. But I think lots of them also um, understand that with this happening now, uh, when sport resumes, and then next year, we've, when we've got an Olympic Games and 2021, 2022, where we now have back-to-back -back world championships and going into another Olympic Games in 2024, that um, this has actually thrown up, maybe not this year, but certainly over the next four years, an incredibly interesting um, opportunity for us all over the next few years. So um, it's been mainly about making sure that they're okay I think <laughs> more than anything as yeah. commercial businesses outside of me because it's a hard time for everybody but um most importantly it's just been keeping our relationship fresh and making sure that we all know kind of yeah what's going on but it's been cool I mean I've been flexible I'm pretty kind of easy breezy flexible anyway so <laughs> I think it's I think it's brought the I think it's actually brought out a lot of creativity in the brands yeah uh, it and, and it and it's certainly I think there are things that they will have learned in terms of activation and working with the talent that, that they will cling to when they get out of post-pandemic or into post-pandemic. Yeah, I think the relationship with a lot of how brands relate with their consumers as well will change because obviously this is a global event that's going to change a lot of us. Yeah. So um, I think they're being proactive and reactive in the, yeah, in the same in the same sense so yeah. it's going to be a really interesting world for brands to come <laughs> back into but sports wise I think yeah well particularly from a track and field perspective and a British track and field perspective the next four years are uh, this yeah the 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 Olympic Games going to 2021 and then the the I guess the the concentration of the athletics calendar over the next four years throws us a very unique opportunity that I don't think it's it does leave athletics centre stage for five summers in a row in an amazing way. I mean, that's something that I'm sure the brands and, 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 and the athletes are, are going to make the very most of. Yeah, that's why right now I'm like, look, let's not let's not stress my body out too much. We've got a very busy four years. Obviously, we're still training, but I'm like, look, <laughs> let's not get injured. Let's rest. And, and we're using this period to, to improve and get stronger on things that we normally wouldn't have the luxury of time to work on because the next four years are going to be very busy and particularly with the home Commonwealth Games and European titles to retain and world titles to retain. <laughs> We're very, very, very busy. So You've just talked about how busy your life is going to be on the track, but I'm, I'm just, for the few remaining minutes we have together, I'm going to look at some of the things you've been doing off the track because my daughters, who are very well read on these matters, uh, advised me that you've graced the cover of Elle magazine. Yes. <laughs> you've featured in Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> you've appeared in music videos. And you've even done a stint on a fashion catwalk in Paris. Yes. So I guess my 
concluding questions are going to be, is this something that really fascinates you? Is this a world that you can see yourself entering when you hang your spikes up, which, of course, as an athletics fan, I hope is not for many, many years. <laughs> we all hope that. Uh, and, well, we all do hope that. But this, is, this strikes me as a world that is interesting you. It is, but I think it interests me more from the perspective of, of it's where we can take sports because from... Where I see it, I look at it as, as culture and women's culture. And if you want to think of sports women as... I think traditionally sports women have been seen as kind of like outside of the, the centre of female culture. Sometimes when you talk about them, people don't quite understand sports women. They see them as these, these people that like spend all their life doing something that they don't necessarily relate to. And um, that's why when you think about women's culture and who the, I guess, the change makers, the tastemakers are, you think of actors, actresses, celebrities, Instagram, kind of like that thing, but you don't often put sportswomen in that bracket. But on the men's side, um, sportsmen are very much part of the conversation. So um, for me, it's just been about trying to see where we can take sportswomen and all the, the the places that we can get sport to influence and that's not necessarily trying to get everybody to do sport but sometimes it's getting people to be more active or getting people to um, understand the philosophies that we conduct our life through how we live a healthy life and stuff like that and and also yeah fashion's fun I enjoy fashion I have to say but mainly for me it is about seeing how we can get sportswomen into culture and fuse sport and culture and for me fashion is the most natural way to do that because that's what I'm naturally interested in. And you you clearly see women in sport as as having the potential of game changing? 100% because I think some of the things that we bring to the table in terms of dedication, focus, resilience and, and particularly how we um, speak to young people, young children and how we have the potential to unite different markets because we can be recognised with the male sporting market but then also the women's fashion market and, and across so many different, different avenues that um, we have so much potential when it comes to culture and stuff like that but I've just found it interesting I, that's something that I think with Nike as well we've been enjoying seeing where we can take it and where we can go because it's just been fun it's been fun to see so many people over the years particularly lots of influential people getting into fitness getting into sport watching more sports women getting to know more and more household names and it's just been fun but I do definitely think we can have an effect on culture and culture can have an effect on us I'd love a personalised kit <laughs> <laughs> a personalised well, leotard uh, that I've been saying that every time and if Nike listen they're going to roll their eyes <laughs> I, I'm going to hand you a magic wand budget set aside what would your favourite designer be? oh budget set aside good budget question budget set aside um, good question budget set aside I think at the moment it's actually Burberry but that, that's not normal for me because normally I love bright colours and I like volume. So I would lean towards something like Valentino. I really like area because that's really cool. But I would lean towards something very funky. But I think just for pure aesthetic and how it's very beautiful, it's Burberry or it's Jacquemus. So you're looking at me like, huh? <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, no, I was put up to that by my daughters. That by was the daughters. question they wanted me to ask yeah. you. So I'm, Jack I'm really is happy. Cool. <laughs> and, and that, will, that will probably mean a great deal more to them than it does to me. <laughs> my sons, however, and this is bringing us right to the conclusion, sadly. My sons have told me not to be the jazz ball. Oh, and you yeah. know why I'm going to raise that. Because... <laughs> 
you might know my love of jazz. Yeah. And it was not that long ago when I was talking to you about the history degree we had, you were doing at King's. You yes. ended up with a first class honours degree. Oh, no, is... I've got a 2 1. I can't let you. In. All right, I know. well, that's hard to trust. I've got to be honest. I'd love to get a 2 1. Oh, what a, fa- what a failure. <laughs> what a shame. But, but you know my love of jazz. And of course, your jazz dissertation, your dissertation for your degree was on the on the, the influence of jazz, particularly Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, on the sort of socio-cultural process yeah. uh, in the United States. So I, I, promised, <laughs> I promised not to dwell on that for too long. But actually, was that an academic exercise or do you really like jazz? I think for me, it was primarily an academic exercise because as probably from just our last conversation, I, I think it's really interesting how you people can shift culture. I think it's fascinating because obviously that's what I'm having fun kind of doing, well, trying, playing with, I guess, playing with would be the word, with fashion and sport and stuff like that. But um, I think for me, it it started primarily as an academic exercise because I thought it was fascinating how um, these jazz musicians of the, yeah, the early 20th century were able to change perceptions of race and and push the boundaries and and change the position of, over time, of black people and how they're perceived in the United States in an otherwise quite, yet difficult environment. Um, And before that, so I thought it was fascinating how they managed to do that through music, but I also compared and contrasted their different ways of doing it. And one shot to fame right at the time and the other one had more of like, still very famous but more of a slow a slow burn and I was um kind of analyzing why they were different and why their different images uh, resonated in different ways and why one has kind of stood the test of time and the other one's reputation has gone up and down and up and down so primarily it was an academic yeah socio-cultural exercise which I guess now we've had that conversation about yeah fashion and sport it makes more sense to you but um yeah, also yeah w- yeah when I was um I guess when I was studying and I was listening to all the jazz music, I was like, I did not realise that half of Disney was jazz, all these things. And and it's been a really fascinating kind of, well, it was a very fascinating experience because I think jazz is one of the few forms of music that is actually an art form, I guess, with a capital A, because obviously all music is art, it's a creative subject, but but jazz kind of transcends it and it becomes more of an academic study. It's more of a historical period and it's influenced far more than just sound. It's, it's, hit, it's hit culture, so it's transcended music. So I guess that's why it was really interesting to me. Well, well, Dina, I'm now going to sneak you out without John Blackie knowing. He's certainly not <laughs> an Olympic uh, I'm going to take you to a well-known jazz club, the 606 on Lotts Road, and be my guest there because they I will, love thank to see you. you. I'm sure John would want to come. And, well, we get, he can come along as well. He can come along as well. And we can celebrate his Coach of the Year award. And I'm sorry about that. I was determined to get jazz into this. <laughs> um, and that, Dina, sadly, is actually the last question. So, Dina, Olympic champion in waiting... Oh, please don't. We've got some work to do before that. Fingers crossed. (laughs) But thank you very much for your time. It's been a really lovely chat, so thank you. It's been great fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 